17 verse 20, that'll be our text today. Uh, But before we read the text, uh, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we together, your people here at Cross Point, sit under your word, pray that you would not only instruct our minds and our hearts, but God, that you you would teach us, that you would draw us to desire to live in such a way that we are preparing for your kingdom. Give us, Father, a holy desire that longs for more of you and less of the world as we encounter your word this morning. And I pray, God, that you would work in our midst to strengthen us as your people, as a body of believers that fellowship together. Oh, Lord, we, we together want to be used by you to reach this community, to reach this city, and to reach the nations for your glory. So, Lord, anoint our ears today to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to love. Anoint my lips today to speak, my mind to think, and my heart to love. And, Father, as we, as we encounter your word today, would you be exalted in our midst And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in the second Sunday of Advent, continuing to look at a reformational Christmas, we are looking today in Luke chapter 17 to see how we are to prepare for God's kingdom. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. And as we continue our Advent series looking at the five solas of the Reformation, today we come to the theme of preparation and sola fide, faith alone. But more specifically, justification by faith alone, which was a hallmark of the Reformation. So to speak about preparation in conjunction with faith alone, we need to ask, our answer some corresponding questions. First, how are preparation and faith alone connected this Advent season, or any Advent season for that matter? Even more basic to, than that is, what, what are we making preparation for? What are we making preparation for? So how are preparation and faith alone connected this Advent season, and what are we making preparation for? Who should be making preparation? Who? Who is called? Who are the people called to make preparation? And I think our text today will help us answer really all of these questions. You know, there are many preachers today who've built their entire ministries on on end-time prophecy, trying to discern how modern-day times or modern-day events fit within the eschatological or the end-time biblical framework. I think to be overly occupied with such a focus is dangerous. It's dangerous because it can cause us to miss the biblical mandate that Christ gives to his disciples and to the church. So Jesus calls every believer, every Christian to live within an expectation to live with it, to live with an expectation and a desire to see God's kingdom come. 
He calls every believer to be prepared for when God's kingdom does come. And he's clear that we don't know, we won't know, we can't know when the end will come. But this question of, God, when will your kingdom come? was a question not only, it's, not, it's a question that's not only asked today, it was a question that was asked even in Jesus' day. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus is asked this question. Basically, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus responds in verse 21, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. So as we celebrate Advent this season, we celebrate that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus himself said it. The kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom of God has come in part, but not yet fully. God's kingdom has come in part, but it hasn't yet fully come. And so we await the, fina- the finality, the consummation, the final coming of God's kingdom. Having received, as Romans 8 indicates, the first fruits of the Spirit, we're still awaiting our final adoption as sons and daughters. So, how then are we to live rightly between the advents of Christ, the first coming, and his final return, his second coming? And so in verse 22 of chapter 17, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples addressing them as living between the advents of Christ. Living between the advents of Christ. So I want to begin reading in verse 20, and then we'll stop at the end of chapter 17. Follow along. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed, destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one, or on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
As we consider this text this morning, it's not your typical Advent text, but I think it has much to say to us in way of preparation, our theme of Advent this morning. You know, the Advent season is about remembering and celebrating the coming of Christ, our Messiah. And in verses 20 and 21, Jesus declares that he's brought the kingdom of God to bear upon humanity. In other words, the presence of the kingdom of God has real-world implications for every person. Not just for us who are gathered here, though certainly, yes, for us, the kingdom of God has real-world implications for every person. He says, the kingdom of God is within your grasp. Some translations say the kingdom of God is within you. But this has led some to think that Jesus means the kingdom of God is purely spiritual, or it speaks to a a private, personal, internal experience with God. Added to this, Jesus wouldn't say to those who align themselves against his kingdom, the kingdom of God is within you. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We see in verse 22 that he changes his attention, or he turns his attention, rather, to the disciples. The ESV translation is better. It says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But it still doesn't really capture the full weight of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is within your grasp. This conveys both the active presence of God's kingdom and the need for active faith on the part of the disciple. The kingdom of God is within your grasp. It is here, yes, it's in your midst, yes, but it's within your grasp. There's action required to be part of this kingdom of God. There is belief that must follow. For his disciples, this means living lives of faith that actively, intentionally places God at the center of our lives. And it means living countercultural to the ways of the world. It means the church, believers, look different. The kingdom of God confronts us with the decision, the decision to believe, to trust, and to follow Jesus. So God's sovereign plan of redeeming the world includes people of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. So living between the advents of Christ has monumental implications for disciples and for the church, for every one of us. And the bottom line, the bottom line is that Christ's disciples are called to lives of faithfulness. We're called to lives of faithfulness, to live faithfully following after God. But what does that faithfulness look like? What's it look like in, in your life, in your context, in your vocation, in your home, in your neighborly gatherings, in your fellowship? What does that faithfulness look like? Jesus gives us two parables to illustrate the faith that he's talking about. But before we look at the parables, I want you to notice what he says about his second coming. Verse 24, he talks about lightning flashing across the sky, and what he's saying is my return will be as obvious as lightning flashing across the nighttime sky. In other words, everyone will see it when Christ returns. 
There won't be any need to wonder if he has come. Everyone will know from all corners of the globe, like we see lightning flash across the sky, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When he returns, no one will wonder if he has returned. But Jesus says before that can happen, understand what must happen to me. I must suffer many things and be rejected. Of course, Jesus is speaking about his journey to the cross and his death. He's speaking about this reality that he will be crucified for the sins of man, that he will suffer God's wrath on behalf of sinners and pay their ransom price. So Jesus will pay our ransom price. He did pay our ransom price, rather. He will redeem his people from bondage and slavery to sin. And through his death, God will declare all who believe in Jesus to be righteous. That is, they will be justified. And so in verses 26 through 30, he says what will ensue are days like the days of Noah and Lot. Right? People will be eating and drinking marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling, planting and building. In other words, what's going to happen in the days that follow are that people will be engaging in the affairs of daily life without giving attention to God or the state of their soul. Sound like our day? Engaging in the affairs of daily life without giving attention to God or the state of their soul before God? And the return, of the, the, the return of the Son of Man will come upon them and overtake them suddenly and without warning. So in verses 31 through 37, Jesus illustrates the suddenness of what he's speaking about. Like an invading army <clears throat> suddenly sweeps into the village, they won't have any time to gather goods. They're on the roof. They, can't go by. they won't have time to go down into the house and gather goods before they take off. And the one in the field won't have time to turn back and go home. The message is clear from verses 32 and 33. The consequence of Lot's wife. Remember what happened to Lot's wife, he says. Those consequences will come to all who love this life more than the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, for whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Disciples of Christ and all who hear the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God must heed the warning of Scripture. We must give attention to the state of our souls in relation to God, our Creator. Have you done that? Have you given attention to the state of your soul before God the Creator? Do you know Jesus Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? We have this great warning in Scripture. We have to give attention to the state of our souls in relation to God, our Creator. If we're more concerned with our grip on the goods of this life than with grasping the kingdom of God, then we need to beware that the grip has whole, or the world has its grip on us. You know, there's no better time to be mindful of this during the Christmas season, especially as we teach our children the true meaning of Christmas. For disciples of Christ, living between the advents of Christ means holding all things of the world loosely 
and actively, intentionally placing God at the center of our lives. Is that what we're doing? Is God at the center of our lives? We must place God at the center of our lives. So how does this translate into faithful living? What implications does this have in our daily lives in carrying out God's mission in the world? Well, I think it helps to put things in in perspective as to what matters most in this life. Our lives, our lives are a testimony to others of faith, of our faith in Christ. So the question is, what kind of testimony are we living and sharing? We must guard against allowing the things of the world, the pleasures of life, even the good things of God's creation, from captivating our hearts and stealing our affections. What matters most in God's kingdom won't be the fun that we had in this life or the treasures that we amass, the houses that we build, all of these things. But what matters most in the kingdom of God will be the people that we introduce to life in Jesus Christ. That's what will matter most in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is within our grasp, in the midst of us. We're called to active faith. We're called to lives of faithfulness as we live in the now-not-yet tension between the advents of Christ. And so Jesus illustrates this call to faith through two parables. The first parable is in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And I've titled it, The Challenge of Enduring Faith. Look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The challenge of enduring faith. Jesus tells his disciples to pray always and not lose heart. You know, no matter what difficult situations we encounter or what hardships we might endure, don't lose sight that your Heavenly Father is good, that He's gracious, that He's merciful, and that He's just. Don't lose sight of the goodness of God, no matter what dark days threaten to eclipse the light of God in your life. Don't lose sight of God's goodness. We meet two characters in this parable, the judge and the widow. Now, two times in the parable, we're told of the judge that he what? Didn't fear God and didn't respect man. Two different times. He was a merciless, unjust judge. Now, a judge is charged with upholding the law and dispensing justice. And from a biblical worldview, and certainly God's economy of Jewish life, a judge was an extension of God's justice on the earth. But it wasn't the case with this wicked, unjust judge. 
Now, the widow, on the other hand, the widow is a symbol of uh, helplessness, a symbol of those who are vulnerable in society. She wasn't in a position to offer the judge a bribe. All she had on her side was righteousness, her righteousness and her persistence to see that what was right would be done for her. And in verses 4 and 5, the judge responds after some time, not because he had a change of heart, but because he was concerned of the widow bothering him. In fact, the verb in verse 5, the verb to beat me down, it means to give me a black eye. And what the judge is saying is that her persistence, her pursuing me, her pursuing justice is going to give me a black eye if, if I don't capitulate and give her the justice that's due. And so for the judge, he gives her justice that's due out of his own selfish reasonings, not because it was the right thing to do, but because of her persistence. For the judge to refuse justice to a helpless woman would be shameful even for him. So now, the point of the parable that Jesus is making is not that we would compare God with the unjust judge, rather that we would contrast God with the unjust judge. It's to contrast the unjust judge finally acting justly with the readiness of our God, our just judge, to swiftly enact justice for his elect, as the text says. How much more will God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? The point isn't even really about persistence as though we have to beg and beg God to hear our prayer. No, God hears the prayers of his children. Friend, when you pray to God as a child of God, he hears your prayer. That doesn't mean that we don't need to be persistent in prayer, but that's not the point that we have to beg an unmerciful, unjust God. What Jesus is teaching us is that which is about the character of God. It's good. He's just. He's merciful. He's compassionate. God hears the prayers of his chosen ones and he answers them. The promise is that God will give justice speedily. Now, speedily doesn't mean that God gives justice immediately, but it means that he gives justice swiftly. When God acts, he will act swiftly. As we consider God's timing, we need to bear in mind a text like 2 Peter 3.8. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So to God's elect, as we... Pray to him, beseech him, request from him, petition him for certain things. It may seem a long time until God answers our prayers. But afterward, we'll realize that it was actually very short. So we need to learn that, that in the silence, our loving God is answering whether we see how he's working or not. Silence can mean no, or it can mean something far greater is coming. As Oswald Chambers says, Some prayers are followed by silence because they're wrong. Others because they're bigger than we can understand. 
It would be a wonderful moment for some of us when we stand before God and find that the prayers we clamored for in early days and imagined were never answered have been answered in the most amazing way and that God's silence has been the sign of the answer. You know, sometimes God's seeming silence in response to our prayer, it teaches us greater dependence on God. It teaches us a a deeper faith or it pushes us to grow in maturity of faith. And Jesus is teaching his disciples about the need for growing faith. Jesus' disciples must learn to always pray and to not give up. Jesus was saying continual prayer until he comes is not only the evidence of faith, but it's the means of building faith. And so as disciples of Christ, we must learn to live a life of prayer, a life of prayer in the now-not-yet tension that exists. Stott says his elect cry to him day and night, not because he does not listen, but precisely because he does listen. You know, it's the mark of Christ's disciples that we practice constant communion with the God who we know always hears our prayers. In the next parable, Jesus illustrates what the Reformers called Christianity's material principle because it involves the very substance of what a person must understand and believe to be saved. And that is justification by faith alone. We see this in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 18. So follow along as I read this next parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted Jesus answers the most basic question of what preparation is necessary for the kingdom of God in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector we encounter two very different men with very different vocations one is a religious leader other is a tax collector works for the Roman government but many would say a thief two very different roles in society and two very different approaches to God. The Pharisee has turned his prayer into a contest. Notice how Jesus begins the parable in verse 9. He told the parable to some who, what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, they were self-righteous. They thought they were good enough. 
He's telling this parable to those, those who thought that they were good enough to earn God's favor. So what do we notice about the prayer of the Pharisee? In verses 11 and 12, we notice that the prayer of the Pharisee is all about him, right? Look at what, how he prays in verse 11 and 12. God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like other extortioners, these unjust people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. God, thank you that I'm not like them. In fact, I'm so unlike them, I fast two times a week. I give tithes of everything that I get. And so he's really patting himself on the back. In other words, what he's saying is, aren't you glad I'm on your team, God? You know, this isn't a gratuitous prayer at all. The word thank you is just a formality. He's saying, God, look at me. In fact, this is the prayer of one who doesn't need God at all. He's, he's self-contained, able to do life on his own, doesn't need to come to God at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day or anywhere in between. He's simply fine to live his life in his own power, his own, his own way, dependent on his own strength. So while the Pharisee thinks himself to be righteous, he thinks himself able to earn God's way, to be good enough to enter into God's presence, we see just the opposite picture from the tax collector. And in the tax collector, notice in verse 13, notice his approach to God. The tax collector stood, he stood far off. Why? He was, he felt unworthy to even approach God's temple. God's holy place, the place where God dwelt. He wouldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven. He felt himself unworthy to turn his gaze toward God. He beat his breast. He was broken. He was sick of himself. He was sick over his sin. He was full of shame and full of guilt. And his prayer was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner completely contrasted with the Pharisee's prayer. God, look at how good I am. God, look at how shameful I am. As we approach this parable, immediately, we want to identify with the tax collector. We want to identify with the one who cries for mercy But so often we identify with the Pharisee, if not verbally, in our hearts as we approach God. God, I deserve to be here. We approach God not being mindful of even confessing our sins before him. Not being mindful of how great his grace is toward us and just how we are able to come into his presence because of the work that Christ has done. Notice what Jesus says in verse 14 as he contrasts the tax collector and the Pharisee. He pronounces the tax collector justified 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Who is the other? The Pharisee, the self-righteous one. He pronounces the tax collector justified. Do you know what justified means? It's a legal declaration where the judge pronounces you in right standing in the court, meaning that you're free of the charges that have been brought against you. You are not under bondage. You are free. You are set free as a righteous person, one who is right. And what Jesus is saying is that dirty, rotten, no good tax collector whom the Pharisee was shunning, that this one was justified before God. In other words, God had declared this tax collector righteous in his presence. Not because of anything intrinsically good within him. In fact, quite the opposite. The tax collector was confessing that he was a sinner, horrible sinner, one who needed God's mercy. And he was also quite the opposite of the Pharisee, the one who said, I'm good enough to come into God's presence. But notice the reversal here from the professional religious man to the no good rotten tax collector. The self-declared sinner comes to the end of himself, humbles himself, and by faith cries out to God for mercy. And in that moment, this humble sinner receives mercy and is justified. This is how preparation for the kingdom of God must begin. It begins with a proper recognition of who we are and who God is. A proper recognition that God alone is the one who can save us. A proper recognition that we are justified by faith alone through Christ, the one who gave his life for our salvation. And so Jesus says the one who has faith is the one who is justified, is the one who begged God to be merciful because he recognized, she recognized that he or she was a sinner. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the preparation for the kingdom of God. This is how preparation for the kingdom of God must begin. It begins with a proper recognition of who we are and who God is, that God alone can save us. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. How are faith and preparation connected for you this Advent season? Even more basic, what are you making preparation for? Are you one who's making preparation? How are you going to make preparation for this Advent season? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, As we close our time of corporate worship today, let each of us be mindful of your goodness and your grace toward us. Let each of us be mindful, O Lord, that it's by faith in Christ alone that we're justified in your presence. And that faith itself, it comes as a gift from you. 
So, Lord, if there's anybody here today that's struggling to have to walk in faith, to have faith in, in you to be prepared for the coming kingdom, I pray, God, that you would draw their hearts to you and by your Holy Spirit continue to open their eyes and their mind. I pray that you would give them strength to come and to speak with me or one of the elders before they leave this campus. And, Father, I pray that you would be exalted in, in our lives, in each of our lives, and in our congregation this Advent season as we seek to reach our community, as we seek to reach our city with the hope of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?